Over-the-top campaign rallies? Check. Anti-Semitic and xenophobic slurs? Check. Fights with members of the press who he felt were not supportive of him? Check. Unwillingness to condemn the harmful actions of foreign leaders? Yep. The through line throughout the decades among politicians of old and present day is amazing. I thought it was about time we looked at Chicago mayors. No, not Rom, Jane, Harold, Lori, or even the Dailies. I'm talking mayors from way back. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. He was called Chicago's cowboy statesman, the builder, Kaiser Bill, a dangerous demagogue, and most notably, Big Bill. This is a much-abridged story of William Hale, Big Bill Thompson, who served as Chicago mayor for three terms and was the last Republican, as of this writing, to hold the office of mayor of Chicago. Before we get into this, I mentioned abridged a moment ago, as there is a lot to cover with Thompson's story. If you know a little about him going into this, I hope you'll find these stories enlightening. If you want to go deeper into all things Big Bill, I'll have links to a few books I used as reference in the show notes. Anything you buy using those links helps me craft this podcast. Here we go. Born May 14, 1868, in Boston to a well-off family, William Hale Thompson moved to Chicago when he was nine days old. When he was 14, he left home and traveled west, working as an assistant cook in a cow camp, and within five years, he worked his way up to operating feeder ranches in Wyoming and Nebraska. When his father died, Thompson returned to Chicago in 1890 to manage his family's interests. In 1901, Thompson married Mary Maisie Walker Wise, a secretary who worked in his father's office. In 1902, Thompson was elected county commissioner, serving two years. He then left public office for the next 12 years. During this time, he was a member and sponsor of the Republican Club of Illinois, becoming the club's treasurer in March of 1914. Finally deciding to take a new run at politics, Thompson ran for mayor of Chicago in the 1915 election, but was opposed by both the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Daily News. The Chicago Journal, however, was a huge supporter. Thompson lashed out at the newspaper editors that were not supportive of him, mainly Victor F. Lawson, owner-publisher of the Chicago Daily News, and Colonel Robert R. McCormick, who ran the Tribune. Thompson said Lawson and McCormick were, quote, lying, crooked, thieving, rotten newspaper editors, end quote, and that they were the, quote, great cancer gnawing at the very heart of our city of Chicago. End quote. Thompson went after the publisher of the Daily News, Victor F. Lawson, claiming Lawson's mansion on Lakeshore Drive, reportedly worth nearly a million dollars, about $25.6 million in today's money, was taxed a measly $17.32, while more modest homes routinely paid more than $100 in taxes. Lawson's team said the small tax was the result of an error the previous year, during which they overpaid. Thompson jumped on this as well because the county clerk at the time, Robert Schweitzer, was the Democratic nominee for mayor. Thompson reasoned that if Schweitzer made these mistakes as county clerk, how could he be an effective mayor? In his book, City of Scoundrels, the 12 Days of Disaster that Gave Birth to Modern Chicago, 
Gary Christ, writes that on Election Day, Thompson's team hired extras from a circus to march through the city streets. Three elephants, a donkey, and a bull moose, symbolizing Thompson's hoped-for appeal to Republicans, Democrats, and progressives, were part of the procession. Thompson won by 147,477 votes, the largest margin of any mayoral candidate in Chicago history up until that time, to become the 41st mayor of Chicago. should be noted that this was the first mayoral election to take place in Chicago after Illinois granted women's suffrage, and 63% of women now allowed to vote cast their ballots for Thompson. One voter, according to the official report, was the oldest voter to cast a ballot. Mrs. Mary M. Conrad, 102 years old, cast her vote for Thompson at the polling place at 6327 Cottage Grove Avenue, saying, quote, It's a vote for Thompson, sir, from a daughter whose father and grandfather fought under Washington. I hope it won't be my last. I'm for good government always, and this is my first opportunity to express myself, end quote. Her story appeared in the Tribune. As the war in Europe became more prominent in newspapers, many Chicagoans felt America should join forces on the side of the Allies. The press often denounced those not in favor of war, accusing them of being sympathetic to the German cause. Thompson spoke openly for neutrality, and even after America entered World War I, stated, quote, I am unalterably opposed to a draft for the purpose of forcing our young men into the trenches of Europe. His views earned him the nickname Kaiser Bill, and citizens demanded he step down. Some even mailed in $10 checks to fund his deportation to Germany. As it often happens in politics, Thompson weathered this storm. Although this bad press and animosity from many voters would later hurt his Senate run in 1918, four months after he was elected mayor in April of 1915, Thompson closed saloons on Sundays, bowing to pressure from a delegation of local ministers. After confirming this decision with the city council, Thompson quickly boarded a train for Los Angeles and to visit a brother living in Santa Barbara to avoid the impending backlash. The brewery and liquor interests formed organizations to push back. Their reasoning was Sunday was the working man's day of rest, and if he wanted a beer or two, he was entitled to do so. Thompson's closing did little to curb drinking on Sundays, as it was ruled that restaurants could remain open on Sundays, even though they could only sell beer and booze the other six days. Nearly every bar owner in the city rushed to City Hall to get a restaurant license. These bars turned restaurants bought a large supply of opaque cups in which they could serve drinks. Many served actual sandwiches at first, but eventually got their hands on sandwich lookalikes made of rubber that they'd put it on a plate in front of a drinking customer and pick it up when the guest left, only to be plopped down in front of the next visitor. That is some Chicago ingenuity, I tell you. In July of 1915, while representing Chicago at the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco, Thompson received word that an excursion ship carrying families from Western Electric called the Eastland overturned in the Chicago River, resulting in over 800 deaths. Thompson returned to Chicago by train upon hearing the news. He organized fundraising drives and vowed to punish those responsible for the tragedy. In 1916, Michigan Avenue ended as a wide street at Randolph and narrowed down to an average width of streets between Randolph and the river. At that point, traffic would swing left about 25 feet, 
then cross the river on a turntable bridge into Rush Street. One of the projects in the late Daniel Burnham's Plan of Chicago was to open Michigan Avenue between Randolph and Chicago Avenue. This would fit nicely into the builder, Bill Thompson's efforts to show Chicago he was a mayor who got things done. This effort was curtailed when America entered World War I and the government took control of all steel production, ruling the bridge would have to wait. Fearing the war might outlast his mayoral term, Thompson claimed Michigan Avenue was a direct route to Fort Sheridan and the Great Lakes Naval Station, north of Chicago, and should be considered a military road. If soldiers and sailors needed to be rushed to South Chicago, they would need to use Michigan Avenue, according to Thompson. This idea was accepted as legitimate, and the bridge opened on May 1st, 1918, with Thompson cutting the ribbon with gold-plated scissors. He had traffic on the road before the sidewalks had even been put in. In their March 24th, 1919 newspaper article announcing their support for McClay Hoyne, who served as Cook County State's Attorney from 1912 to 1920 and was running as an independent in the mayoral election, the Chicago Tribune referred to Thompson as a, quote, dangerous demagogue, end quote, and a load of straw thrown into a barn in which a fire has already started, end quote. The definition of demagogue, to be clear, is a political leader who seeks support by appealing to the desires and prejudices of ordinary people rather than by using rational argument. Mm-hmm. The papers accused Thompson of allowing his cronies, quote, to profit from contracts and other graft and with having allowed the syndicate of gamblers to operate without interference, end quote. Instead of responding to these issues, Thompson sidestepped them and focused on presenting himself as the most patriotic candidate. And at campaign rallies, entered with a song that began with the lines, America first, last, and always, our hearts are loyal, our faith is strong. He discussed the League of Nations effort by President Woodrow Wilson, to which Thompson was opposed, by saying, quote, This is a plot by King George to dominate the United States and to regain the vast land lost by King George III at the time of the Revolutionary War. He would do it by casting five votes against us every time we cast one vote, end quote. Thompson went on to say about the King of England, quote, I'm telling him now, unless he keeps out of our affairs, I'll punch him right in the snoot, end quote. At this, he made a large punching gesture in the air to a roaring fan base. He went on to win that election. King George V, for those of you who don't follow all things the royals, was the grandfather of Queen Elizabeth. When later asked about the whole King George thing, Thompson admitted, quote, I know the Germans and Irish are Democrats, so I had to win them over to get reelected. The Germans were sore at being pushed into the war, and the Irish were sore at England over its 800 years rule of their island. Funny thing, though, I understand the king is a pretty nice guy, end quote. Thompson won this election by a much smaller margin. He again claimed he would expand Chicago by widening streets to cross over more of the city, build new post offices, freight terminals, playgrounds, bridges, and more. In 1921, a situation arose between Thompson and Robert C. Crow, the state's attorney, who Thompson helped elect. 
Crow stated, quote, I broke with Thompson because he was interfering with my sworn duty to expose and prosecute hellholes of prostitution and commercialized vice, end quote. Crow felt Thompson's police force was competing with his office instead of helping it. Thompson declined to run for the office of mayor in 1923. Democrat William Deaver took office. Four years later, Thompson came roaring back, still sporting his 10-gallon Stetson cowboy hat, decrying the open vice, gang violence, and murders that Deaver allowed to happen during his term as mayor. His campaign slogan? America first. His gimmick for that election? Carrying two rats in a birdcage to campaign rallies. The rodents were introduced as Dill and Fred. Dill was short for Dr. John Dill Robertson, who was running for mayor, and Fred for Fred London, who was a ward boss in Robertson's corner. Bonkers, I tell you. Thompson won with more than 51% of the votes. In an April 7th, 1927 Associated Press story I found in the Rock Island Argus newspaper titled Big Bill to Rid Chicago of Gunmen, Thompson, as he prepared to become mayor for a third time on April 18th, was quoted as saying Chicago gangsters are going to hit the gravel so fast their shoes will burn up. I'm going to drive all gangsters and crooks out of the city to New York, to Cleveland, to St. Louis, and elsewhere. And maybe some will go to London. The article claims Thompson's quote came after he was shown a cablegram from an English newspaper of their account of the election in Chicago that reflected a reign of lawlessness and terror here. Thompson went on to say, quote, In 90 days, the crooks will be practically driven out of Chicago. The police will be put back into police duties instead of sniffing around for homebrew and fanning mattresses for pints. Pointing to an American flag, a picture of George Washington, and to a framed copy of the Declaration of Independence, Thompson said, quote, This is going to be a city where America is first. See those? Thompson also smiled when reminded an enthusiastic follower had started a Thompson for President movement. Less than two years later, seven men of the Irish Northside gang were gunned down in a garage in Lincoln Park by men dressed as Chicago police officers. In 1931, Big Bill Thompson announced he would run for a fourth term. His primary opponent, Anton Cermak. Big Bill came out swinging, playing to those he thought were his base. At one event, he took a verbal shot at Jewish businessman Julius Rosenwald. Rosenwald, who is a part owner of Sears and Roebuck, also founded the Rosenwald Fund, which, among other philanthropic efforts, donated millions in matching funds to support the education of African-American children in the rural South. He was also the principal founder and backer of the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, to which he gave more than $5 million and served as president from 1927 to 1932. These efforts did not appear to impress Thompson, who, during one March 1931 campaign speech, said of Rosenwald, quote, Well, we got a great philanthropist in this town, and he's a Jew. And he's trying to edge his way out of hell by giving part of the money he steals, end quote. Anton Cermak had campaigned based on a liberal attitude toward the saloon industry, fought the 18th Amendment, which brought about prohibition, and sought its repeal. As Chicagoans had long since grown tired of prohibition, which was still in force, Cermak's platform had great appeal. 
Thompson, in his effort to knock down Cermak, decided to go after Cermak's immigrant background. He was from what was then known as Bohemia, with ethnic attacks. At one rally, he said, I won't take a backseat to that bohunk, Chermak, Chermak, or whatever his name is. Tony, Tony, where's your pushcart at? Can you picture a World's Fair mayor with a name like that? Cermak was able to respond effectively to these attacks. He doesn't like my name. It's true I didn't come over on the Mayflower, but I came over as soon as I could. This response resonated with the large ethnic Chicago population, and Thompson's slurs went largely ignored. Thompson was also known to repeat his past successes over and over at rallies and sought to weaken Cermak's support of wet rules, as they were known, in front of a group of ministers at the Great Northern Theater on Jackson between State and Dearborn, and before he completed his remarks, he bragged about how he had closed the saloons on Sundays. When this remark was reported in the general press, it reminded voters of this unpopular decision from all those years before, leading to a swing in support to Cermak, who defeated Thompson by 17 points. After Thompson's defeat by Anton Cermak in 1931, the Tribune did not pull punches, writing on April 9, 1931, quote, Thompson recognized the Tribune as his chief enemy. The Tribune was glad to earn that opinion. For Chicago, Thompson has meant filth, corruption, obscenity, idiocy, and bankruptcy. He has given the city an international reputation for moronic buffoonery, barbaric crime, triumphant hoodlamism, unchecked graph, and a dejected citizenship. He nearly ruined the property and completely destroyed the pride of the city. He made Chicago a byword for the collapse of American civilization. In his attempt to continue this, he excelled himself as a liar and a defamer of character. He's out. He's not only out, but he is dishonored. He is deserted by his friends. He is permanently marked by the evidences of his character and conduct. His health is impaired by his ways of life, and he leaves office and goes from the city the most discredited man who ever held place in it. I found numerous newspapers of the day that picked up the Tribune's words, not just big papers, but small papers, including the Selma Irrigator out of Selma, California. I had to look it up. Selma is near Fresno. Uh, The Interior Journal of Stanford, Kentucky, and even in the Age newspaper from Melbourne, Australia. Cermak was in office less than two years before being fatally shot by a would-be assassin of President-elect Franklin Delano Roosevelt in Miami, Florida in February of 1933. In 1936, Big Bill Thompson ran for the office of Illinois governor as an independent against Henry Horner. Thompson received only 3% of the vote, and Horner became the first Jewish governor of Illinois. Not one to give up easily, Thompson ran in the Republican primary for mayor of Chicago in 1939 and was defeated by a 77-23% to margin against future governor Dwight Green. In declining health, Thompson stayed out of the spotlight during his remaining years. He developed a severe chest cold in February of 1944. Doctors placed Thompson in an oxygen tent without success, and he died of a heart attack seven weeks later on March 16, 1944, 
at the age of 75 at the Blackstone Hotel, where he had been living for the last few years. He had been estranged from his wife. For such a larger-than-life character, Thompson's funeral was said to be not well attended, with only a few passing by his solid bronze casket, and according to one reporter, there was not, quote, a flower nor a fern to be seen, end quote. He is buried at Oakwood Cemetery on East 67th Street on Chicago's south side. Oakwood Cemetery, by the way, is also the final resting place of Italian physicist Enrico Fermi and civil rights activist Ida B. Wells. Before the end of that month, it was reported a safety deposit box in Thompson's name was found at the American National Bank and Trust containing $1,466,250. The money and gold certificates were so tightly packed into the box that it, quote, sprang out like jacks in the box, end quote, when the container was opened. Thompson's wife, Maisie, fainted at the sight of the billowing heap of wealth. More deposit boxes were found, rounding the final number closer to 1.8 million, about 26.5 million in today's money. Longtime detractors immediately pointed to this hidden stash of wealth as a sign that all his years turning a blind eye to the exploits of organized crime and the likes of Al Capone may have been more profitable than anyone knew. Once the word got out about his vast fortune, claims started rolling in. Not just from creditors, but there was one from a man in Wisconsin who claimed he once saved Thompson from a potentially fatal nosebleed by pressing a dime under Thompson's nose and that Thompson promised to provide for him in his will. A Canadian woman thought she might be the former mayor's foster daughter and that a $200,000 share seemed fair. Someone from Louisiana thought Thompson could be the descendant of a relative who disappeared during the Revolutionary War, which would make Thompson kin to the Louisiana claimant. After taxes on the wealth was paid, the rest went to Maisie Thompson, who lived out her days comfortably. Maisie Thompson died in 1958 and was buried near her husband, separated by a tall obelisk bearing the family name. The couple never had children. At the auction of her effects, two pieces of note were sold. One was the pen Thompson used when he signed the order to close the saloons on Sundays. The other was the gold-bladed scissors he used to cut the ribbon at the opening of the Michigan Avenue Bridge. I am hopeful you find this look at Mayor Big Bill Thompson interesting. Would you like to hear more about other Chicago mayors in future episodes? Do you have a mayor in mind? Do you have questions about anything covered today or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for an episode of the Chicago History Podcast? If so, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will be posting news articles, pictures, and ads from back in the day related to this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. Check them out and give us a like, please. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you would, please take a moment and like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Now, wait, you know what? This time... Tell three friends. 
It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. Thanks for listening.